Welcome to the Uncover Pod, the podcast where we delve into the world of legal risk and compliance. I'm your host, Daniel Chatfield, and each week we will be speaking with industry-leading experts, thought leaders, and successful professionals who have made their mark on the industry. We'll explore the latest trends, share best practices, and offer insights and advice that will help you navigate your career path with confidence and clarity. Uncover is a specialist legal risk and compliance recruiter, and whether you're a seasoned professional or just starting out in your career, the Uncover Pod is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and let's uncover your potential together. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Uncover Podcast. My name is Daniel Chatfield, the director and founder of Uncover. We are a specialist risk and compliance recruitment business that focus on placing risk and compliance professionals into law firms across the UK. Today, we are joined by a brilliant guest. It's somebody who has an extremely impressive resume. They have been in the space for over 20 years. And in terms of the views that they're going to share, they certainly have some very, very interesting insights. So without further ado, please join me and welcome to the show, Sarah Mumford. Sarah, how are you? Good morning, Dan. Welcome to the show. Um, Sarah, as I said previously, thanks very much for for joining on the show. I think I've been very excited about having you having you here. I think from a from a, a risk and compliance perspective, and certainly from a, a podcast perspective, um, I have spoken to numerous guests, but I think very few compare in terms of the longevity that you've had in the space, and also the breadth of experience that you've had in the space, and also the the number of high profile firms that you've worked across. So it's it's really a delight to have you here. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Well, I suppose, would you like to start by just giving us a brief overview of your, your background, how you got started in the risk and compliance space and, and sort of where you are at the moment? Yes. I mean, it's been interesting just dwelling on my career, which has been a long one. I was admitted in 1981, after all, uh, which was where a lot of your audience weren't even born. Um, I mean, I started off, I've always lived in Bristol. Um, I was articled to Richard Smerton of Osborne Clark, who was one of the great influences on my life. And anyone listening who knew Richard will know what I mean. Um, and in fact, years after I left Osborne Clark, I was on a train and Richard walked past and said, oh, Sarah, how nice to see you. Have you got a pen? And I said, Richard, I have three pens. And he said, that's a good plan. And I said, but Richard, you told me on my first day of articles never to leave the place without a pen. Anyway, of course, <laughs> he, he took two away with him, which was totally typical of Richard. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, it, it was interesting because, of course, at that time, Osborne Clark had uh, 16, so I think I, when I left, had 16 partners or something. The firms mm-hmm. were much smaller then. Everything was much smaller then. Um, and it's been very interesting sort of watching both how the law and and indeed my career within it has changed. Um, I've got another article to Clark's story, which I was thinking about this morning over breakfast, which was uh, in those days, um, Osborne Clark had a criminal department, excuse me, <clears throat> very well regarded. And I was sitting behind counsel in a murder trial. And um, the, the client, who was a wife murderer, kicked off and was taken down to the cells. And I had to go down and tell him he'd been convicted of murder. And I was in this small room with him, a rather flimsy table and a, a prison officer. And I have to tell you that that has now been my benchmark for scary experiences. And all of these uh, 
these men who think they're so tough, I, I call them not very affectionately, the silverbacks, have to measure up to the benchmark of this very violent man. And I have to oh, tell goodness. you that they don't measure up. So it's quite a good thing to have had at the start of your career, quite frankly, Absolutely. Dan, because no, nothing phases me after that. That's, that's certainly, and, certainly one way to, to set the bar. Indeed. Anyway, so um, I've always been a, a commercial litigator. Uh, in fact, I think I think I was the first female commercial litigator to be made a partner in Bristol. Uh, the partners who were, did family, med mal, things like that, but PI, but n not commercial litigation. So it just sort of goes to show how things have moved so quickly, actually. Well, some might say glacially, but actually, I think it is quite quickly. Um, so it's quite funny because the, the senior partner of uh, Lawrence Tuckett's, which became a TLT later, the, um, David, who's an absolutely lovely man, real gent, he off offered me a partnership. In those days, you were offered a partnership. You didn't apply. You didn't have, um, you, know, you didn't have to have, I don't know, these tests and all the other things that people have to go through now. You just were offered it and the next day you were a partner. Um, but I said to him, David, you do know I'm pregnant. And he was really offended. And he said, Sarah, that makes no difference. And it, I think it's worth saying, because I, I think, again, a lot of people feel that flexibility and uh, attitudes were uh, not not as they were in those days. And it, it, things were often more about the person than the policy, because there weren't really policies, not, not as such. Uh, so I, 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 I wanted to flag that because it was a, a quite an important part for me of, of being validated because I was quite mm -hmm. worried about the effect of a pregnancy on my career if, it, if I'm honest. Anyway I, I, I covered professional negligence, claimant and defendant, insolvency, um, wash debt collection, uh, professional conduct and investigations um, and all of them have rather put me in good stead for what became my second career. And um, in 2000, I was preparing for a budget meeting at TLT and I suddenly thought, I cannot do this any longer. I can't persuade these people that the case that will probably make the money at the end of the next financial year hasn't e isn't even a dispute yet. You know, um, all mm -hmm. I could say was we've always made our budget and I'm just fed up with battling over budgets. I was also and it was finding the sort of hard clothes of every day because I had to leave at four to get home to relieve the nanny. And um, of course, in those days, it was all about post. I had baskets of post from my team and trying to give that the attention it desired and then racing out of the door every day. I, I was finding increasingly hard work. Anyway, I gave him my notice without anything to go to, without any plan. Um, and... 24 hours later, the, um, the the managing partner, Robert Bournes, who in fact was a trainee with me at Osborne Clark, said, Sarah, what, if you're fed up with fearning, why don't you become a best practice partner is my idea. I think it's really worth looking at how we're doing things. Can we do it better to look at our claims, which I was already dealing with, claims and complaints. That was my partner job. Um, you know, can we do things smarter? And I was really interested in that idea. And I very happily did it for seven years at, at TLT. Again, it was quite, it's sort of a couple of things that came out of that. The first was I felt rather on my own because I knew how to be a litigator and there were lots of litigators about me, but 
um, I didn't really know how to do this thing, best practice. And so I made mm -hmm. common cause with Sophie James at Bevan Britain and John Verry, who was then at the Solicitors Indemnity Fund and was just leaving. And we both, we were all insured by Libra. And so we formed what was called the Libra Group. And it was a sort of self-help group and was incredibly useful. And it made me realise how important networks and getting on with each other was. was. And that Libra Group became the Bristol Risk Managers Group, which is still very successful and, and carrying on today. And I, I would urge any sort of compliance people, however junior they may feel, to, to network and make friends, not just in your firm, but, but around the place, because uh, it, there's quite a lot that can be shared that is not confidential, uh, not client confidential. And uh, I, I would encourage people to do it. Um, anyway, um, so I then left uh, TLT after seven years. Uh, I'd, I'd had enough. Um, it, I think seven years is about the limit for a director of risk, unless something sort of major happens, in which case you kind of have, have a second life. And I gave him my notice again. My husband said, Sarah, could you stop doing this? Just tell me the morning you're going to give me your notice. Um, anyway, 24 hours later, the managing partner of Bevan Britain phoned me up and said, we're looking at how we do do risk, could you, because it was risk by then. Um, could you come and have a chat? And I said, well, I might be interested in the job. Um, so anyway, I was held to my notice. You're always held to your notice, as you know, Dan, as, as a director mm -hmm. of risk. And um, I, I went to Bevan Britain for another seven years. It was a very enjoyable. Um, but again, I, I just had this thing. Could I run my own business? I mean, I've been self-employed for 25 years, but they just give you stuff when you're self-employed. You know, here's a laptop, here's a, a phone. Um, and, you know, could I actually hack it running a business? And I was quite lucky because I was 55 by then. We paid off our mortgage. We had, my son was in a good job and I, I could take the financial risk. And I fully understand that for a lot of people that, you know, that those, those particular circumstances don't fit. Um, it's still a financial risk, obviously, but it was less of a financial risk than it might have been. Um, and that's when I decided to set up my own consultancy. So that's, I've probably spoken enough. You've probably got a question there. No, fantastic. Thank you, Sarah. I mean, I think in terms of, as, as I mentioned, sort of in the intro, I think people who have been in the space for that amount of time are, are few and far between. And I think certainly the, the there must be some massive difference between being employed by someone and then equally going out and venturing on your own. Um, I know certainly talk, talking from experience of setting up my own business, I do know that there there are times when there's a lot of uncertainty and perhaps um, you feel you're going in one direction and question whether or not that that, that is correct. Um, but I, I suppose in terms of your your life in in consultancy, what would you say are, are sort of the main positives and negatives that you've realised over the last the last few years? There is something very liberating about working for yourself and being able to choose. And um, that's a that's a big positive. I think it. I, I know it has extended my working life considerably, because mm -hmm. it, it's things like. I mean, I I would work very hard Tuesday to Thursday. I'd be on the 0700 to London and back on the 1900, and 
a bit on the Mondays and Fridays, there it was a bit more flexible. Often I had to do a lot of admin, and I'm sure you know how much admin, even just a one-person <laughs> consultancy Absolutely. generates. But um, I could go to the cinema in the day. I could do some of my many other interests. And I, I do think that's a, that is a positive. I, I think you you get to know yourself and you get to know your strengths and weaknesses. I mean, after a long time, I finally gave in and employed someone to be my IT department because I was getting myself tied up in knots as I was when making tax digital arrived. Um, I think that when you are in, I mean, what I was doing, perhaps I should just explain what I was doing in my consultancy. I, and again, I had no plan. And people say you must have a plan, and I'm sure they're right, but it didn't bother me. Uh, in fact, when I went to the bank and asked for a business account, they were, they were horrified that I didn't have a business plan. And mm -hmm. I said, well, if you build it, they'll come. And they were very sort of wary. And then when I said, well, I don't, you do realize I don't want to borrow any money. They're, oh, right, fine. And since then, my bank have left me completely alone. I mean, they've never made any inquiry whatsoever. Mm. Which I, I do find rather bizarre, but anyway. Um, so, I, 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 and one thing I did find really helpful, there's a very good book published every year by the Financial Times about starting your own business. And if anyone is thinking of starting their own business, I thoroughly recommend it. It's got sort of very clear advice. And at the end of every chapter, there's a sort of self-challenge. You know, are you up to this? Ask yourself this. Ask your friends. Do you think I can do this? I thought it was a really good really good book well worth the money it was my first tax deductible expense um, sorry Sarah can you just can you just repeat what that that the, that book yeah. was for our listeners it's a financial times guide to starting your own business perfect thank you brilliant and, and Sarah just just picking up on a few points there because I know that you mentioned you sort of gave that story about um the the initial murder trial and having to go tell somebody that they were that they were being convicted, which was obviously a, a fairly harrowing experience. And you alluded to um, sort of tricky conversations and silverbacks as you put them in, in different firms. Just in terms of developing the relationships within the firm, because I imagine being in a place like TLT or Bevan Britain for seven years versus going into an organization and having to kind of replicate that and build relationships in a shorter period of time. Um, and I mean, you've been in various different firms, be it Taylor Wessing, Adolf Goddard, Charles and Hamlin. How does it compare doing that in in one set, sorry, on a permanent basis versus on a consultancy basis? And what are the sort of the challenges around that? Um, yes. Well, it's an interesting question, actually, because um, what happens when you are a, an interim person is that you don't, you deliberately don't set out to, to make a permanent fixture, if that makes sense. So you're mm -hmm. not, not trying to have as many relationships as you would as you would if, if, when you start and um, start a permanent role. So mm -hmm. you, you, you work out who you need to get things done. And so it's, a, it's like a shallow dive. You're not doing a deep dive. Um, I mean, when I left RPC, I, I found the, the new GC, Reshma, and um, she spent I think the first month in meetings and which we 
I mean, we all thought this was a brilliant idea. So, so she could then really get to know people and I mm -hmm. could just get on with business as usual. And then I left and she carried on with the business as usual. Very, very often. Sorry, you don't have that very often. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, one of the great advantages is when you arrive as an interim person, people don't really know who you are and they don't know you're there. So you're not invited to meetings and you can get <laughs> masses of stuff done and you realise how many meetings you have to attend, which you don't really need and aren't really necessary because uh, I, I used to get a lot done. I mean, one of my mantras as an interim person was to change as little as possible because by definition, someone was coming in after me and they would have their own ideas. So it'd be very annoying. And that's one of my mantras, you know, don't be annoying. Uh, well, unless you have to. Um, but don't, don't be annoyed. And so don't change things that you don't have to. So, um, again, it would be a question of just keeping the ship steady and just making a few tweaks here and there and keeping the morale of the team up. That was always quite important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I suppose, Sarah, because I think for a lot of people who maybe have been in a firm for a long period of time and the idea of a consultancy is something that appealed to them or at least moving in that direction um, or starting something by, them, or, or by, them, by themselves, I think... A lot of the fear that we we get and that we hear is that there is the concern around will I be able to win business? Um, how will I actually um, ingrain myself in these different firms? And I know you mentioned if 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 we build it, they will come, um, which I think is very nice sounding. But in in reality, how did you actually go about um, building out that network and slowly starting to gain traction within the market? Well, I had a network because well, I mean one of the things I did when I was a, a, a director of a permanent director of risk was I used to accept any invitation to speak at a conference because mm -hmm. number one I, it made me learn the subject I was talking about properly instead of you know, superficially um, mm -hmm. and 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 B because it was then free so I then got my training for free um, but it had the side effect of of getting to know people and I probably told about 20 people that I was setting up this consultancy and all I can say and this is going to cause you uh, pain Dan is I've never paid for a client I've never advertised for a client mm -hmm. they just phoned me up and it's it's become organic now I, I'm not saying that's going to happen to everybody but I, it is a, a, a sign of the power of networks and uh, I think I had three weeks before my first job and then I've been busy ever since. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And I think I, I really like the way you put that because I think well, certainly through the, the course of this podcast series, a lot of people we, we speak with often emphasize the importance of having a network. And I think it doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily matter if you're just starting out in the industry, if you've been there 5, 10, 15 years, because I think being relatively close-knit, those relationships within reason are not obviously not easy to create, but you can go about and network relatively quickly in the space, certainly from what, what we've seen. Yes. And it, it, again, going back to my, my youth, um, in Bristol in 1979, which is when I started my training contract, well, of course, I was articled, wasn't a trainee, um, mm. but there were, uh, I think, 240 members of the Bristol Law Student Society, which was basically all the trainees. Um, but Osborne Clark was unusual in having four trainees at any one time. Most had one or two. 
And so we had to make our social life, our training, everything else for ourselves. The firms didn't provide it. So mm -hmm. I was a net, I was automatically networking um, from, from a very early age. And we, we all knew each other in a, in a way that nowadays, I think when you have masses of trainees or, or um, uh, apprentices, etc., the social life, the training, everything is centered around their firm. And they don't kind of get out and about quite the same way as we did. And I think mm -hmm. that's a shame, actually, because if the firm isn't right for you or the people, your cohort isn't right for you, I suspect it's quite a miserable time. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that that's progress, I, I guess. Absolutely. And I suppose there are four sort of junior candidates coming through the ranks and getting into the risk and compliance world. A lot of the roles that we are seeing now might be fully remote opportunities. Do you mm -hmm. think that those roles have a risk of potentially limiting one's progression um, in the sense that, fair enough, you can network to an extent on online and um, obviously we do a sort of Zoom and Teams and all the rest of it. Do you think that personal interaction is crucial in this, in this space? I think you're asking the wrong person, Dan, because I profoundly believe in, in being present. Mm -hmm. I, I, I get that if you are living somewhere remote from London, uh, you can have a very interesting job remotely um, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the cost of living, etc. is easy. I mean, I do understand that. And in fact, I've employed such people, but you have to work so hard. And from the, the more senior you are, the more important it is that you're present. I can't tell you mm. how many times I've just walked the corridors, as it were, and bumped into someone and they said, oh, Sarah, I've been meaning to talk to you. And actually, the thing they've been meaning to talk to me about is pretty crucial. And mm -hmm. I have I, wondered time and time again whether if I hadn't just walked past them, they would have ever picked up the phone to me, let alone um, sort of set up a Zoom call. So mm -hmm. I, 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 I do think it's important that you're, you're about and that if you have a remote job that you at least come in to the office. But you see, the thing is, it's not just about the office, it's about all those other people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I know you sort of mentioned, sorry, you went a bit off track in terms of the starting your own business consultancy very, being very liberating. Um, in terms of the negatives, what, what have you come across? Um, well, it's, it's little things like remembering you never have a day again. So if you don't work on a day, you don't get paid for it. And it's as simple mm -hmm. as that. And so if you go on holiday in October, November is going to be pretty um, lean as well as October because you haven't got the time in. So things like budgeting and quoting, you learn quite quickly how to do that properly. I mean, I've been mm -hmm. quite lucky. I've never had a bad debt. And um, I put a, a military notice on my invoices about being an extremely small business. Um, and I'm paid promptly, but you know, I, I, people aren't. And you have to build that in too. Um, the admin is quite extraordinary, actually. And um, I, I, I'm really upset that you can't buy an iManage light for someone like me. So I could, for example, save all my emails and documents together. It drives me crazy. Um, but mm -hmm. that that's that's it. I mean, my inbox is is 14 years old now because it, it is my filing system and there's yeah. not much I can do about it because, you know, there uh, there isn't a case management system for one person. Because perhaps that's mm -hmm. one thing I should make clear. I decided very clearly in 2013, I was going to work 
just me, not a company, because I was the only only ever going to be the only person in the company. Therefore, I would be the talk visa. No point in being a limited company. Um, mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to employ anyone either. Uh, I, I've got huge respect for what Amy's done with Teal Compliance. and I mean, other people are out there as well. Andrew Donovan, Kate Burt, they're, they're all doing uh, different things, but they're building businesses. Uh, I never wanted to do that. I, I just wanted to be myself working, mm -hmm. uh, working with people I wanted to work with. Brilliant, brilliant. And and Sarah, in terms of the, the types of consultancy roles or, or models that you operate, I, obviously you've stepped into sort of various heads of, heads of risk and directors of risk roles. I mean, what, what are the different models generally? Um, well, I mean, normally the reason I have been, have been offered jobs is because somebody has been ill, is pregnant, or um, there's just a gap. You know, the, 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 the firm didn't really believe that this person was going. It's quite extraordinary how often that happens. Um, and sometimes it's been as an extra pair of hands. Um, and so typically I, I haven't done a job for more than a, a year, an inside a year. Uh, one of my happiest times actually was working for my great friend Valentina at Nabarro, just as Nabarro was about to merge with CMS. And they had masses of stuff that you know, cans have been kicked down the road and uh, I just was an extra pair of hands. I had a lovely time sorting out escrows and archives and and, and, and sometimes Valentina would say, Sarah, this is a bit menial for you. I said, it's not menial at all. If you pay me as a director of risk, I'd, I'll do anything. So, mm. um, no, you know, and we had, we had a really good time. So, you know, you have to be open to whatever comes along. And I think that's the other thing I would say is... I had a, 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 a policy that from TLT onwards that if I got more than one question on a subject, I used to write a briefing note and I used to adapt what I'd already said in my advice to the, the fairness. Um, and then I didn't necessarily always put it on the internet, but I kept it uh, close for, for future. And you never know how much you can repurpose what you've already done. I mean, I've written two articles, which I did at, at someone's request. One is about setting up a, a risk department and the other is about setting up a consultancy. I can't tell you how often I've just given that out to people mm. um, because you you don't know. And I think sort of being, being open to this might lead to something else, I'm going to consolidate mm. my knowledge is a really useful thing, actually. Brilliant, brilliant. And I suppose in terms of the, the the practical tips. I know you. T I suppose we can kind of split this into two. I suspect. I suppose the the one is in terms of someone deciding now's the time. I want to start a consultancy, versus maybe somebody who's set up a business and they're kind of thinking, I've got a lot of admin. Maybe I need an I manage system. Whatever it might be. I suppose on the first point, for example, somebody sitting as a risk and compliance lawyer at Silver Circle, Magic Circle firm, decide, deciding I want to go out. What would you advise would be the, the first step to, to doing that? Um, it's very difficult to advise in the abstract, but mm -hmm. because it very much depends on the person and, and, and how they make decisions. Um, I always buy a new notebook. And uh, okay. I, I have many notebooks um, and I buy a new notebook and write it down. And, and 
it, it may just be a question of positives and negatives. You know, looking, you know, who do I know? What do I know? Um, what 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 will make me happy? Uh, you know, those those quite open questions, I think. Um, and then working out the finances, because what you cannot have is financial worry, financial fear. You've got to be able to say to yourself, "This is going to. I'm going to be okay." I, I, I think, and then asking around. I mean, and asking people like you because you, I'm sure, have interim jobs all the time. I mean, people have given up asking me now because they know mm -hmm. I'm not going to take any more. But, but there are so many out there, and if you can't find them through your network, the the, the specialist risk recruiters will will know about it. And mm -hmm. it's so I, I think that's important. I think to join one of the many risk groups or form one yourself. I mean, I'm a member of about four risk groups who meet and just chat about non-competitive risk stuff. And you know, again, they, they all know who I am and they can pick up the phone to me and often do. You know, have you got one of these? What do you think? Sometimes that leads to work. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, but there's a there's a strong sort of self-help in the risk world because we are on our own um, we're this rather odd hybrid because we're a minority in business services because we're lawyers in business services and um, we're a minority in among the lawyers because they see us in, in business services so you know we have to make our own carapace we have to make our own um, tribe and so I think that's it's a question of just making sure that you are as connected as possible and people know that you're out there Mm -hmm. And then I, 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 my advice always to people is I do quite a lot of mentoring and I always say, look at who you admire and why you admire them mm -hmm. and, and work out if that fits your personality. Because some people have this fantastic ability to, for example, to network in, in terms of walking into a room cold. Um, I don't like doing it and I've been doing it for years. But I, but I know people who are really good at it and I kind of look at how they do it and think, right, well, I, I could do that. You know, th that works. So I, I think it's a question of being self-aware um, and having and being pretty clear about your what you want to do, but not to be rigid. I, mean, I didn't I assumed that I would find work around Bristol. And I have had a bit of work around Bristol, but nearly all my work has been in London. So I've adapted. Brilliant. And yeah, I mean, I think those all make perfect sense, weighing up the positive and set, positives and negatives, mm. uh, ensuring you've got the financial, um, the financial, the financial sorted of being able to support yourself, not feeling that pressure. Um, and then also, I think, being flexible. I think another one that I, I can't remember who I was speaking to, but um, the, the point was essentially along the lines of it's never going to seem perfect at any point. And at some point, you've just got to put put the feet on the ground and and, and get going. Would you say that's something that that, that would resonate? Well, yes, um, but you know, don't try this at home, kids. Um, you know, <laughs> in fact, I told my friend about uh, that I give uh, I gave him my notice without giving him notice you know, as an equity partner. Let's be clear, um, without anything to go to. So you know, you sometimes things have to stop in order for others to start. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but but not at the risk of, of 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 wrecking your mental health. Absolutely, that sounds like some very sound advice, indeed. And and Sarah, I suppose just in terms of sort of shifting to that other 
idea of if somebody who's maybe started doing this and they're struggling with the, the heaps of admin as you alluded to, do you kind of outsource a lot of stuff or what is the... No. No, do it all. No, as I say, I, I now have a very sensible uh, IT relationship with the Bristol Computer Workshop who are fantastic and sort out my laptop mm -hmm. from time to time. Uh, and I have an accountant now who does the uh, VAT because uh, making tax dig digital was the final straw for me. Um, but mm -hmm. no, I do everything myself um, because okay. I want to keep, I want to just keep control over it all. Fantastic. Uh, Brilliant. And I imagine you... I suppose you probably do work very long hours, but I suppose having that, 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 that flexibility to do it as and when you want is kind of leads into that, that liberating idea that you, you spoke about previously. Yes. And I, I mean, I have a binary system. I'm either working or I'm not. So it doesn't really matter when I work and it doesn't really matter whether it's a Saturday or not, if you, if you know what I mean. As long as I mm -hmm. take a day off here and there, it, it, it really doesn't matter. Um, my mm -hmm. husband has retired, he, he, but he works as a notary. But again, he sees people at home. So in fact, that's who I was waving to just now. Um, <laughs> and he, uh, so, so you know, it, 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 it makes life in some ways more complicated, but in other ways, much simpler. Brilliant, brilliant. And generally speaking, so you qualified an 81, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And in terms of how, I mean, I imagine things must have changed considerably both in terms of law firms, life, risk and compliance. And what are, what are the probably biggest changes you've seen that firms have experienced and equally how we've seen risk and compliance teams develop over the, over the years? Well, when I was admitted, uh, it, I was one in 10. That's in, not, not in my cohort, that's in the profession. So I was used for many years to being the, the only woman in a, in a room of men, uh, which is why I never offered to pour the tea, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. But so I've 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 been brought up in the world of men, and I've retired in a world where the majority of women in the law are female, which I, I'm I'm delighted, obviously, about. Um, I think, it, I mean, one of the things that I, when I was a, a young litigator, we used to have directions hearings in on I think Tuesday and Thursday mornings, and everyone turned up at Bristol County Court. And it was because there was no such thing as a consent order. You had someone had to turn up to get the order, and it sounds like it's a huge waste of time. But actually, being uh, milling around the court, waiting to be called on, one got to know the other people. You know, your fellow litigators. Uh, I worry now that uh, a, lit a Bristol litigator could walk past another in the street and not even know, because mm. everything is done um, by by email, etc. And we used to, because we got to know each other, we trusted each other, we managed to settle cases and and talk about things. I, I, I'm sorry that that has gone. Um, I had complete control over my files. We didn't have as many documents because there weren't as many documents because they all had to be typed. Uh, so you could deal with discovery as it was called then. So I had complete control over the case. I would I found it increasingly difficult um, as I got more experience, but also as as litigation developed, that I had to hand so much over to junior people. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to have that control. It's sort of why I don't have any um, admin help either. Um, but I think one thing I d d did want to say, because I do have this perspective, is about bringing yourself to work. Uh, I never brought my whole self to work. In fact, someone mm. told me, 
that you should never have a photograph of your son or your child on your desk because it meant that people wouldn't take you seriously. And it, I mean, now, of course, no one has a desk and no one has photographs. But, but mm -hmm. you know, for a long time, I would walk past you know, pictures of winsome children and smile and think, I'm really glad that you feel you can put it on. I mean, I worked for uh, with people who were gay, people who were trans, I mean, even in the 90s. Um, mm -hmm. And th that was something that just we that was just a, a, an individual relationship thing. Um, I don't know how they felt. I hope they felt uh, accepted, but there wasn't a kind of firm, wide sort of approach to this. And I'm, so I'm glad that there's now much more emphasis on being yourself. Um, and particularly, actually, funnily enough, about neurodiversity, because I think that's something that you bring to work, whereas your um, your gender, your sex, whatever however you want to call it, is in a sense irrelevant to the work. Whereas neurodiversity affects how you work and how you can do your best job, and I'm really pleased to see that that has now has has now become much more to the fore. It's still difficult for a lot of people, but I think it's got a lot better, if if I can say that. And I think the last thing is that the kids, well, everyone's a kid to me, Dan, um, but the kids uh, really could on the whole Me Too stuff. We had to put up with so much low level um, groping and all sorts and inappropriate comments. I mean, I had a client when I was a junior lawyer, a client who mm -hmm. said, I need a proper lawyer, meaning a man. And mm -hmm. my boss gave him a proper lawyer, a man, who I'm pleased to report was feckless. But anyway, um, but, and interestingly, the client was black. And I felt like saying to him, look, we're both minorities. Can't we stick together? <laughs> um, but, but, you know, th th but that... Uh, I, I do think it's really important because the, the, the kids won't put up with stuff now and I'm mm -hmm. I'm absolutely behind them and I'm really glad because that's how the dial will shift. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, uh, yeah, obviously it's shocking that you, you had to go through that type of stuff and it certainly seems like it is on everybody's radar and the mod keeps getting pushed out and certainly the, the, the way to go. And I certainly from a, a risk and compliance perspective. So we we, we kind of track the diversity in terms of uh, gender, race, um, across across the board in terms of roles that are coming out, candidates that are placed. And I think year on year it it progressively improves, which is a, a really really encouraging sight to see. And and hopefully it continues in that vein. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I suppose the the, the last thing that I've re really noticed is is this question about the always on culture. And again, that's why I'm very glad I was young in 1981 when none of this was around, because um, I I really genuinely don't care what a lot of people think, particularly people I don't care about. I don't care what they mm -hmm. think. Um, and I can't understand why uh, others can get so worried about what other people think when they don't care about them. And I think it's partly to do with social media. Uh, which was just not a feature when when I was mm -hmm. younger, and I I I, I, I and, and it worries me because I, I I want people just to live their lives without looking behind them all the time, and that that seems to be what's happening. And although I, I work jolly hard, I've worked jolly hard all my life. Um, you know, I, I I finished at four. I took a, an armful of files home. I played with my son. We all had dinner, uh, and then I worked in the evening 
you know, night after night, but I was quite happy with that, but because I could control it. And until the post arrived, I didn't have any sort of new issue. Whereas nowadays, I would be having an email pinging all evening. Mm. And I, I, I would feel I was on much more of a hamster wheel than I did uh, when I was uh, a Fianna. And I, I do think we have to worry about that because I'm really concerned about the numbers of people who are burning out and the number of people who are retiring early. You know, I'm 66 and I'm, I'm going to be working for another couple of years because I really enjoy it. And yeah. I don't think there's many people who feel like that. And I think that's a great shame. And Sarah, I suppose the, the almost on culture that you, you talk about, because I've no doubt people listening to this will very much agree with you in many respects, but I think where it has become so institutionalized within law firms, what advice would you give to, to candidates who are having to be on their, their, their phones at all hours of the evening and um, early mornings and weekends and things like that? Because I think it's, I think everybody understands and appreciates the benefit of switching off. But if if switching off has the risk of potentially impacting uh, progression or whatever it might be. What advice would you give to someone in that situation? Well, I don't think uh, junior compliance people should be in that situation. Um, I think if you're senior, I think you just have to make it clear to people when you are or not available. Um, mm-hmm. I, But I think people are their own worst enemies. Um, I remember... John Joyce, who was the managing partner of Adelshaw's, saying to me that he used to come down from Manchester, where his family were, he used to come down from Manchester to London on a Sunday, and he'd spend the train journey sending out masses of emails and, you know, uh, and he said, I'm going to have to stop doing this because people uh, receive an email from the managing partner and immediately rush to answer it. He said, that was never my intention. My intention was Mm -hmm. just to get this stuff off my desk. Of course, now you can delay your emails so that they arrive at eight o'clock in the morning, but you couldn't then. And I I, I thought he he was right, actually, because sometimes it's the nature of the person who's sending the email rather than the content of it. I think if you are in a firm where they have bought your soul and paid you a vast amount of money, then I'm afraid you have to suck it up. And that's that's just it. But I think mm-hmm. if one of the reasons why people go into compliance is that they have a bit more time um, when they can take take time to be themselves, be with their family. And uh, I, I would use out of office. But I mean, the other day I sent five emails in quick succession. And I got out of office from all of them. These were on Friday. And mm-hmm. I got out of offices from all five saying I'm away till Monday. And blow me, I got a response from all five of them within within half an hour. Now, no, really? Now, it, it wasn't urgent. None of those emails were urgent. And they, they if, if they were having a day off, they should have had a day off. And an email mm-hmm. from me is not threatening. You know, uh, they could have waited till Monday. But part of me understands the feeling that if I can I can deal with that quickly and then it's off my desk and then Monday whatever fresh hell Monday brings at least I've dealt with that email mm-hmm. but, it, but it's it it, it it actually isn't good for you it really isn't good for you yeah and I imagine it's that kind of um that, that tough spot in the sense that you, your your work's probably not as productive as it should be and neither is the break so a, a bit of no man's land in between no no, and uh, we, we we need to do something about it because burnout. Uh, I, mean, I I I have seen burnout in my career, and it it was very um, it was an awful thing to witness. Um, 
but it, it, it relatively rare. It seems to be happening more. And I think we all need to understand why. And it's, it's a whole lot of things. Um, Leah Steele, who uh, is also a Bristolian, has does some really interesting work about this. And um, she, as she says, you know, it comes from lots of different places. But the trouble is that once you have burnt out, it's almost very, it's very, very difficult to to sort of retrace your steps and and start again. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's years. It's not a question of of. Um, you know, having a few spa days and feeling better—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really fundamental. Mm -hmm. So definitely something people need to watch very, very carefully. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, sometimes there's it, it, it all hands on deck. Everyone understands that, and it, well, I think everyone should understand that. It, it, it part of being a lawyer, and it's part of working in an law firm, but it shouldn't be all hands on deck all. You know, every evening, every weekend, that something's gone wrong. If that's the case, mm -hmm. perfect. And and Sarah, just conscious that we are nearing the end of our allocated time. Thoroughly enjoying this conversation. Um, but I, in terms of your your time in the space, you've no doubt learned a lot of very very valuable lessons. Some of them we've we've, we've discussed over the course of the past hour. And um, what would you say are probably your most important lessons that you've learned? Well, I, this my team always laugh because there's a couple of Mumford mantras. So um, we are where we are is a very popular risk um, mantra. You know, let's not look why we've got here. Let's just make sure we can dig ourselves out. I'd say if you ever want a lawyer to do something, persuade them that their client wants it. Never, ever mention the SRA. You know, if we're doing this for the client, um, I think I've, I've been involved in masses of projects, masses, and I would always advise people if you're going to do any kind of a project to work on a pilot. Um, what else? Um, oh, one of my favourite ones, actually, and, and again, my te any team I've worked in will tell you about this. If you send someone an email and they don't respond and you send them another and they don't respond, don't send them a third pick up the phone. Mind you, I'm showing my age there um, because mm. as far as I'm concerned, anyone under 30 doesn't seem to be able to pick up a phone. But you want to solve problems. I mean, for me, that's one of the reasons I went into the law. Well, it wasn't actually. I went into the law to help people. That didn't survive my first contact with a client. Um, but I did want to go into the law to solve problems. And uh, you, the, how will you solve problems? You an email is a strangely passive thing and you know you need to have a, a meeting you need to have a phone conversation um, and and get it sorted and i think that would be my probably be my epitaph brilliant brilliant sarah it's been an, an absolute pleasure i think the the insights that you've shared will certainly be invaluable and very well received by all our guests i think for any of those people who are in a role looking to go down the consultancy route or even in, or somebody in a permanent role who's enjoying it but looking to conduct their day a little bit better and just get the most of their careers and um, i think those are all very very valuable tips so thank you for sharing well thank you for asking me and uh, just to say that if anyone is thinking of it and wants to read my note about setting up a consultancy they just have to email me and i'll send it to them wonderful wonderful i'm sure you'll get a lot of uptake on that one uh, but sarah thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure 
Um, I hope you enjoy the rest of the week and hopefully we catch up soon. Indeed.